Welcome to Powwow Live Podcast from powwows.com, connecting you with native culture since 1996. Here's your host, Paul Gowder. Welcome back to another episode of the Powwow Live Podcast. I'm Paul Gowder, founder of powwows.com, and I appreciate you being here again this week. Today, I've got an interview with Maria Gladstone, founder of Kitchen, and she is challenging our beliefs and our way of cooking, eating, and just all of our thoughts around food and really trying to return people back to um, in indigenous ways of food. Um, so it's a really thought-provoking interview, and she makes it very accessible to use indigenous ingredients and mix them into your lifestyle. So look for that in just a minute, but I do have a couple of announcements. First, I am just returning from Gathering of Nations powwow. What a week it was out in Albuquerque. Oh, it was so great to be back there, seeing uh, new old friends, meeting some new folks, and just being back in in that environment was fantastic. I'll have more on that on next week's episode. I'm still kind of uh, you know gathering my thoughts on, on what all happened that weekend, and so I'll talk to you a little bit more about some of the things that changed, some of the things that stayed the same, and, and my thoughts on just what all happened there. Uh, it was so great, and I'm glad to see powwows are back, and I hope to get to see you at a powwow soon. Speaking of, our calendar continues to get new powwows added every week, so be sure to check that often to see where you can go for your next powwow trip. There's one close to you happening sometime soon, so head on over to powwows.com calendar. Also want to say a special thank you to all of you out there that are part of our Patreon community. These are the Booster Club of Powwows.com, people that are making a contribution each month to really help move us forward with Powwows.com. We're using that to hire more writers, produce some really great content, having some trivia contests and other things. So thank you for joining that. I really do appreciate it. So thanks goes out to some of our new members of the Patreon community, Judy, Beth Ann, Eleanor, Jean, Jackie, and Joseph. Thanks, guys. If you want to be part of that community and see some of the cool things we're doing over there, like monthly Zoom calls with everybody and some really exclusive rewards you can only get it on our Patreon, head head over to powwownation.com to find out more. Make sure you stay tuned. At the end of the episode, I'll have this week's trivia contest and a couple more announcements. But for now, let's hear from Maria Gladstone of Kitchen.
So I watched one of your talks today and I love the fact that you were talking about decolonization and that that's a big topic right now. There's a lot of people talking about how we, I'm sorry, decolonization. That's, that's the word I was looking for, I think. Um, but nobody is talking about how it relates to food. So when you start talking about that, what is the reaction? What, what are you hearing back from the audiences that you're speaking to about this kind of topic? Yeah, I think a lot of people are really interested in this idea of a return to indigenous foodways and a revitalization of our ability to feed ourselves. So instead of decolonization, I'll actually talk about the re-indigenization of our diets because we're recognizing that we can use these tools that our ancestors have, but we can use them to move forward into the future rather than going back and trying to undo colonization. Um, that something super people are super interested in. Yeah. I like the idea of wrapping it more in a positive light than, than the negative. That's great. All right. Well, let's back up. Um, so how did you get started in food? I guess, tell me a little bit about your background and, you know, how really how you got started into cooking and this, this type of thing. I was really lucky that my mom had me cooking a lot in the kitchen growing up and it was her secret way of teaching me fractions. <laughs> and of course, then I understood the basic concepts of what went into food and she let me experiment even as a little kid. So I have recipes written down in marker with no sense or reason behind the spellings of words. Um, but I was able to experiment and put things together. And even though my undergraduate degree is not at all involved in food, um, I, of course, had to cook. I had to feed myself to get through college. And I began to experiment a lot more with food, as well as using it just as a stress reliever, baking for friends and being able to share that experience and share meals. And then, of course, when I returned back to my home community after my undergraduate degree, I was able to get a lot more access to the traditional foods here in Montana, but also recognize that disconnect that we have from access to foods as well. This idea of like, quote, food desert, but also, you know, the need to restore knowledge around traditional foods and how to use them and how to harvest them and how to cook them. Yeah, you know, listening to that talk, and, and you mentioned that where you are, there's only two grocery stores that sell fresh fruit. That's that's crazy in such a vast area. But it is, I mean, even here, I mean, I live in a fairly um, metropolitan area, even though I'm out in the suburbs, but it's still easier to drive by Chick-fil-A at night than to stop and and, and cook the, the meal with real food, as you're talking about. So, I mean, I guess the challenge of, of, of time and, and ease, I mean, you're, so what are the shortcuts to really help people get into this kind of habit? Yeah, I think that obviously, um, you know, out here, it's probably a town pump deli filled with, filled with JoJo's and chicken strips <laughs> and stuff like that. And that's the easy meal that people can go to. Um, but people ultimately want to be eating healthy foods. They want to feed their kids healthy foods. Um, that goes without saying, but 
often that can be a challenge, um, especially when people are exhausted at the end of a long work day and just preparing a meal in the kitchen can be tiring in itself, especially when everyone's hungry and just wants to eat. So I try putting out recipes that are very achievable for folks to do. Uh, I'll use, of course, the tools of the modern kitchen, um, you know, whether that's putting things in a slow cooker at the beginning, beginning of the day. So you have food ready at the end of the day, whether that's uh, an Instapot or a pressure cooker and rapid cooking something, whether it's, um, you know, just being able to get kids involved in the kitchen. You know, if you have a kid that can grind up zucchini noodles and can turn <laughs> a squash into essentially a spaghetti hack, mm-hmm. uh, then you're getting kids involved too. And that gives them ownership over the meal as well. And, you know, I'm of course looking at things that people recognize as foods they enjoy as delicious. I'm not looking for five-star dining. I'm just trying to make things that people will be able to do when they get home from work at the end of the day. That's awesome. So, and I, you know, I've talked to a lot of people lately, of course, and with their businesses and, and all the challenges over the last couple of years, it, it hurt a lot of businesses. But I'm imagining with the, the pandemic and people really wanting to do more at home, you know, you hear the stories of like Home Depot had massive sales because everybody was doing home projects. During COVID, did you find more people turning to um, cooking and trying to find better ways to prepare their food? For sure. Um, there were a lot of issues, especially at the start of the pandemic, that really identified some key problems in the supply chain and how susceptible indigenous communities were to breakdowns within that transportation system. And so we, of course, like many places, ran into shortages and escalated prices and things of that sort. But the intensity of those problems forced people into looking for alternatives. And so now I can say that uh, we could go to one of the grocery stores on the reservation and we can buy Blackfeet raised bison from our tribal herd and have access to that resource. And it's $7.99 a pound, which is cheaper than you can buy bison at Costco two right. hours away in the big city. <laughs> um, and so, you know, that's something that our nation started looking at and we're like, how do we deal with this? How do we manage the concentration in the meatpacking industry and challenge that system and give the quality meat to our people that we're raising here. Um, So, you know, there were things like that, that were really, you know, the problems because they became so extreme forced us to find solutions. Similarly, you know, I, I serve on the board of Fast Blackfeet, which stands for Food Access and Sustainability Team. And we run Uh, one of the food pantries in Browning, but part of that uh, work besides food pantry work and emergency food supply system has been building gardens and starting people growing. Right Last year, it was native plants for teas so that people had access to healthy beverages. And this next year, it's vegetables. And then being able to sell the vegetables to the food pantry so that they can distribute them to folks, so that they can 
start farmers markets and we can have fresh vegetables that are grown in this community. So there's things like that and being able to really offer those resources and change the way in which we're getting food and we're supplying food to our nation. That's awesome to hear that, that your nation has taken that stand. You know, the concept of you're not sovereign until you can feed your own people. Um, that's a pretty challenging concept uh, when most, most tribes are still struggling with financial sovereignty um, or even just government sovereignty, you know, being able to govern themselves. Um, but you're right. We have to start looking at those things. And I don't think, I don't think the food is going to get any easier. You know, you hear with, with climate change and other things that, that our food supply is going to be a challenge here soon. So you have to become self-reliant. I love hearing that. Um, as you travel and I know you, you do some other talks, how are, have you, how are other nations? Do you know if other nations are starting to move toward this? I think almost every indigenous nation on Turtle Island has interest in food sovereignty. Um, I think, it, of course, requires some long-term planning, and so many of our communities have been focused on immediate survival. And so, you know, sometimes to, to do that long-term work that is needed, um, we have to be in a place where we're ready to do that. And so not every nation uh, has started to, you know, put in long-term food sovereignty plans or thought about their own gardens or what that takes, um, but everyone's interested in it. And so I think that's part of the reason that Kitchen resonates for so many communities. But also, you know, I think when we look at the history of food systems in on North America, we know that food systems were very intentionally targeted by colonial governments so that Native people would not be able to push back against colonization and land theft. And I mean, there were laws passed in Congress, which said that if you didn't send your children to boarding school, your rations would be withheld. So, I mean, everything is connected to food systems. And that, that idea of food sovereignty is essential to our political sovereignty, too. And so as we recover that, we also recover this ability to push back against colonization if we're not relying on subsidized food programs to feed our communities we're able to be a lot more active in this broader space that said there are a lot of amazing food sovereignty programs that are light years ahead of where even we are here on blackfeet nation um i know the oneida nation of wisconsin uh menominees I was like, Wisconsin, Great Lakes tribes are doing some amazing things. Um, Red Lake Nation, um, I've seen some amazing stuff happen from some West Coast tribes. These folks that are doing work to build food systems that are ran by the tribe or they're supporting tribally owned businesses. And, you know, they're creating amazing systems. I think it's Menominee that has an aquaponic system. So they're raising fish in a greenhouse. And then that's feeding plants in the greenhouse as well. Um, I know that Red Lake has a, they have of course wild rice and they have their fisheries and they have um, wild harvested berry sauces and value added products made with their wild plums and choke cherries and all of these amazing foods. So you can go order 
pancakes are made with their wild blueberries and whatnot. Um, and so there are really cool things like that happening, but there's also indigenous producers like, um, I know of several folks that are you know, fishers and run, I was going to say fisher men and women, um, that run their own businesses that are native. So it's not tribally owned, it's owned by individuals. Um, but they're being bought by their tribes or they're supported by the Intertribal Agricultural Council and their American Indian Foods Program. So there's a lot of work being done and folks are excited about it. You know, across Indian country, we have the ability to support each other's food enterprises. Um, there's a wonderful uh, woman uh, that runs Sakari Farms out in Oregon and she makes like cedar smoked salt and hot sauces. And so I'm like, yes, native owned hot sauce company. Um, and I'm able to support that stuff and, you know, support that value added product. But she's also growing all of those foods and, you know, peppers, chilies are of course an indigenous food from Mexico. And so we're looking at these ancestral foods and these connections and the ways in which they can inspire us and power us forward today. That's great. Some a friend of mine sent me a a basket of stuff from Red Lake, and so it had some of their jams. It had it had this really great uh, hot seasoning salt um, and some wild rice, and that that stuff was fantastic. And they're doing some really great stuff up there. Um, well, tell me about how, how did the idea come about for for your website, Indigi Kitchen? How did that sprout up? Yeah, I was actually at a food sovereignty conference. Again, a whole bunch of natives talking about food sovereignty. Uh, and a lot of the talk at that time, this was in 2016, I think, was about revitalizing and we're restoring our access to foods. This idea of food desert and the idea that we don't have enough grocery stores. And that, of course, is an issue. But also, you know, it comes with this multi-generational history of our food systems being taken away from us and being forced into relying on government subsidized food systems so that we forget all of our traditional knowledge that's taken from us. It just didn't just disappear. It's stuff that was really intentionally disconnected so that we wouldn't be able to feed ourselves. And so as we look at restoring access, we also have to connect that with a restoration of knowledge, we have to know how to cook our wild plants. We have to know how to butcher wild game. We have to know how do we plant our seeds so that we're not depleting the soil? How do we harvest things and save them so that we can eat them into the winter? So all of that knowledge has to come with the access work. We know people are excited about foods, but they need to know what to do with them. And a lot of recipe books can be really French-based in terminology. Um, they could be hard to access for folks that didn't necessarily grow up reading cookbooks. And so I came up with the idea for an indigenous digital kitchen, Indigi Kitchen, and started making videos using the janky camera equipment and the camera skills I was able to learn off of YouTube. And I started making my own YouTube videos. And so now, and, and now you've got uh, a plethora of, of recipes and videos out there. So uh, you know, you're right about the the recipe books. I had not thought about that, but they are written from a certain perspective. Um, and they, I mean, I find it if I ever try to do that, um, 
fortunately I have a wife that cooks much better than I do, but you, you read even simple instructions, you know, it, it is confusing. So are, how are you overcoming that on your website and, and really making it accessible to anybody? Yeah, I work hard to, I mean, of course, use layman's terms whenever possible, um, but also I couple everything with videos so that people can not only have instructions written down, but also be able to see what that means. If I'm describing cutting up a butternut squash so that it's in or so that it's in lasagna noodle shape, it really helps to have a video that goes with that, that helps you go, oh yeah, I can do that, um, which makes it that much more achievable. And yes, cookbooks can be super unfriendly if you don't know the terminology. And when I was growing up, we obviously didn't have smartphones uh, in our pockets, so we weren't able to Google every word very easily. And so I remember, I remember a neighbor calling me and freaking out because she was trying to prepare rice aroni and she didn't know if she had a saucepan. This was in like seventh grade. And I'm like, it's just a pot. But we don't use the term saucepan in right. rural Montana for just describing our basic pots. Um, and so I, I had to rescue her on that. Um, but it's so funny because it's this information that can be just out of people's reach. And it is what I'm doing to try to make it much more accessible uh, so that folks realize how easy it can be. <laughs> and you're right. We don't call them that here in the South either. They're just pots. Um, get the big one or get the small one. It's about <laughs> well, exactly. all right. So, so when somebody new, hopefully there's people watching now that um, are learning about your website for the first time. So a new visitor coming, how do they get started? What, what's the best way to, to really get into your cooking and, and, and this whole style of, of, of thinking? Yeah, I, of course, look at the things that I have access to. Um, and, you know, whether that's uh, fresh harvested greens from outside the door. And, you know, for me in Montana, that's going to be different than folks in the South, for example. Um, but I do have access to wild game meat. I'm really lucky here. So I have deer and elk and uh, now I can buy bison in the grocery store, which is awesome. Um, but it's, it's finding ways to use those things. And a lot of the times what I will do is I will make recipes that people are familiar with. So of course we know Indians love spaghetti, right? <laughs> and so we can obviously substitute everything in spaghetti for indigenous ingredients, right? Tomatoes are indigenous. Like this whole idea of red sauce was taken from native people to begin with. So we're just reclaiming it. Um, as for pasta, there are so many indigenous substitutions for pasta, right? I already mentioned zucchini noodles, which is just essentially cutting up a zucchini like noodles. And there are special tools called spiralizers that will do it quickly, but you could take a vegetable peeler and just peel the zucchini into little noodles like that. You could add carrot noodles if you wanted to. Um, and then you just cook them up in a pan for, you know, five minutes. And then you have delicious spaghetti noodles that are sweet, but also a vegetable. So you don't have to feel guilty about it. And then you can put bison. Um, if that's what you have, you could put venison burger. If that's what you have, you can put, you can make a vegetarian. <laughs> you can use bell peppers, which are of course more indigenous foods. And you can of course, indigenize your seasonings if you want to. There's 
tons of different indigenous seasonings, everything from cedar to wild bergamot, which has like almost an oregano flavor. Um, there's of course peppermint. If you want to season things with peppermint, um, there's yarrow, which tastes like tarragon. I'm just trying to compare things to colonial versions of these things, which I don't need to, I don't need to do that. Not everything needs to be framed in terms of colonial <laughs> foods. Um, but it's definitely, you know, and then of course you can look up ancestral recipes. What have people been making for thousands of years? So, you know, I look in the Great Lakes and wild rice with berries and maple syrup and a nice sweet dish and, you know, be able to utilize a recipe that's been made like that for thousands of years and powered people and fed people and kept nations alive. So, you know, there are different ways of looking at food and there are, you know, cookies that we can make with sunflower seeds and maple syrup and, you know, be able to connect with all of these delicious foods and take that ancestral wisdom, the agricultural knowledge, and then reimagine it in our own way. Culture is not stagnant. We're able to change and learn and restore that knowledge and recognize the wisdom of the past while using it today in the present and guiding us into the future. That's great. Uh, um, it, it seems when you first hear the topic uh, of, you know, trying to re-indigenize your cooking, it, it seems like an overwhelming topic, but you do present it in such a way that it seems a, a little more accessible. Um, all right. So you've got a, a great website. Um, your YouTube videos are are awesome. Uh, you've, you've moved past the janky camera. Um, you, you're doing yeah, great stuff there. So what's next now? In, hopefully things are opening up. I'm hoping you're going to get back out there speaking some more. What, what is coming for you in this year? Yeah, um, I'm super excited. Um, I'm heading to the East Coast in April, doing a couple of university presentations and food demonstrations. So I'm really excited about that. I'm working with um, Fast Blackfeet and the Food Pantry to teach some cooking and gardening classes. So I'm really excited about that. Not only how do we get things to grow in cold Montana climates, but also how do we take all of these zucchinis that we're getting out of our garden and turn them into eight different types of food. Um, so lots of fun things like that. Um, I'm excited to be working on a children's cookbook um, about native foods, which I think is extra important for kids to learn how to cook since I was lucky enough to learn when I was really young, um, working on a couple different toolkits and research projects about the logistics of our food supply system and really tedious information about trucking and transportation. Um, but ultimately to connect with uh, better, better served grocery stores in our communities and lower food prices, hopefully. So doing a lot of really fun things. Um, and then of course, just getting to experiment in the kitchen. So seeing if I can make macarons with pumpkin seeds instead of almonds because, and maple sugar instead of, white death, right? Um, so looking at fun things like that, um, but just trying to connect with that knowledge and um, get to, to cater a fundraiser um, for our local gardening program. Uh, lots of really exciting stuff on the horizon, for sure. Well, I definitely can see my address if you need taste testers for any of that. It all sounds great. Uh, and the idea of a cookbook... Uh, 
you, if you can get it, a kid's cookbook, if you can get kids to cooking and, and thinking of food this way, it's, it's a lot easier. They don't have to rethink like you're, you know, the whole idea of going back to natural food and real food instead of processed stuff. You can give them early on. That's, oh, I love the idea of that. So please keep us updated on that too. I'd, I'd love to know more about that when it comes out. That's great. Yeah, um, for sure. Well, thanks for, for spending a few minutes with us. Um, I love what you're doing over there at, at Indigit Kitchen. Um, it's a great concept and I love all your videos. So thanks for spending a few minutes with us. And thank you so much. Uh, it's easy to revitalize our food systems. It's easy to find indigenous foods. Three-fifths of the world's food originated in the Americas. It's not hard to find native foods. Um, so it's it's time that native people learn how to cook with them again. Thank you. So who's hungry and ready to go fix a new meal and try one of her recipes? Ah, I loved the interview and thanks to Maria for spending a few minutes with me to talk about some of um, just some of the ways we can make, put indigenous um, recipes and cooking into our lifestyle and uh, what you're doing to help tribes do that. It's pretty uh, the whole idea of food independency and food sovereignty is is a really interesting concept and I hope it's something that more tribes will move toward. All right, as promised, I have a new trivia question for this week. You're competing for a prize pack, which is a whole bunch of powwows.com stickers. So I will draw from all of the correct answers one lucky winner um, before next week's episode comes out. So here is your trivia question. This weekend at Gathering of Nations, they crowned a new Miss Indian World. The previous Miss Indian World served two terms and then they let the title go vacant for the remaining time because of the pandemic. So a new Miss Indian World was crowned this weekend. What tribe is she from? All right, there's your question. Good luck. Head on over to powwowlife.com. Fill out the form there to put in the correct answer. Good luck. Again, I'm Paul Gowder. I am the founder of powwows.com and thank you for being part of our community I hope you enjoy these episodes. Be sure to like us, review us on uh, Spotify or Apple Podcast, wherever you're downloading this. Thank you. Have a great week, and I'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Power Life podcast from Powers.com. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast to get notified of our next episode. Find a powwow near you by visiting www.powwows.com forward slash calendar. Support powwows.com by visiting www.powwownation.com. Here is this week's trivia question. You can head over to powwowlife.com to fill out the form and submit your answer. All the right answers are entered into a drawing for a 10-sticker powwows.com sticker pack. Here's the question.
This year, we are celebrating a big milestone. We have been live streaming for a number of years. So tell me, what year was the first year we streamed and what was the first powwow we streamed? If you've been listening or following our content, you should be able to find it. Good luck. Powwowlife.com to submit your answer. What was the first powwow and what year did we first live stream? Good luck and thank you so much for listening. I'll see you next week.